This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop AmosAdvantage.com today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Wolfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We've got a great episode for you as always. Jeff and I recap a Lincoln Cent discovery and some commemorative coin legislation that's working its way through Congress. Our segments today have sort of a military theme. World War II is discussed at some length, which is appropriate given that the 75th anniversary of D-Day was last week. And we talked to Andy Kimmel of Paragon Numismatics about some common misconceptions and questions that numismatists might not feel totally comfortable asking. So just a reminder that if you're enjoying these podcasts, you can subscribe to them in any of the normal podcast channels. We'd appreciate that. So you can keep up with all the latest news every week. The news this week starts off with some exciting news from the world of Lincoln Sense. That's the uh, probably the most beloved American series, certainly the starter set for most collectors. And what's interesting about this is NGC, Numismatic Guaranteed Corporation of America, has authenticated and encapsulated a 1943 cent, which is the first of its kind. Now, you hear 1943 cent, what do you think of? I think of steel. Yes. Well, this is not a steel cent. It is one made primarily of tin, almost 87% tin. And NGC experts are not willing to say that it is an experimental piece. There's nothing in Mint Archives that can corroborate that, but it's certainly from the body of evidence suggests that it was made late in 42 as work on the new alloy was underway. It's really a fun story of how this piece came to the market and came to general awareness. A uh, gentleman out near Portland, Oregon, Manuel Houston, he found this in the yard, either when the uh, garden was being dug up or the porch was being replaced. And you think, gosh, he doesn't know When exactly or what? Well, it wasn't recently. It was 50 years ago when he was nine years old, about nine years old. And it's been in his possession ever since earlier this year amid news of a copper scent that was uh, quite rare from 43. He decided to get his 1943 cents and see what he had, did the magnet test, found out that this piece was not like the steel sense that he had and did some further investigation. And that's how it has come to light in the numismatic marketplace. A fun little bit of trivia in this, uh, when he was a kid and found this, the piece was damaged. It was bent a little. And as he was, like so many collectors, he was building a, a set of Whitman folder, blue Whitman folder. To get the coin in the folder, he actually bent it <laughs> because uh, it, it otherwise would not go in. So so it is, it is damaged, but it's the only one of its kind. And so certainly that's some fun news from that hobby front, Lincoln Sense. That is a heck of a find. I really wish that I uh, had just stumbled upon something that rare on the ground. Yeah, it's kind of like Hasn't that, happened yet. Yeah, kind of like that gold out in California a few years ago. Yeah, right. I mean, apparently you have to go out to the West Coast to find <laughs> Buried tra- hidden treasure in plain sight. I mean, that's- oh, I, I guess here in Ohio we're not uh, we're not doing quite as well with that. So. Uh, bummer. Indeed. So what's the news uh, that you have for us, Chris, uh, coming out of the other side of the country, <laughs> yep. Washington, D.C.? Coming, coming out of D.C. There is a bill that was just passed by the U.S. Senate, Senate Bill 1235-1235. If enacted, this piece of legislation will create one silver dollar, a commemorative coin, honoring the centennial of women's suffrage. The 19th Amendment was passed 100 years ago uh, this coming year. It was passed in 1920. 2020 is coming up, so it's been 100 years since women got the vote. And Marsha Blackburn, Tennessee's junior senator, introduced this piece of legislation, and it was co-sponsored by every one of the 25 women in the Senate. And this was a bipartisan effort. This was a bipartisan effort. Women from you, – you don't often see Marsha Blackburn and Elizabeth Warren voting the same way, but all the women who serve in the Senate uh, co-sponsored the bill. And it passed very quickly. It uh, took just five days. It was introduced – End of May, right? May yeah, 29th, was, I think? I believe like May – May, May 30th or 31st, I believe, and it passed June 5th. 
So it took five, six days. Yeah. Which is less than a week. Which I mean, is that's... under a week, which is an incredible turnaround time for any piece of legislation, but especially, you know, congressional gold medal legislation, which is considerably less partisan and certainly less contentious because and less visible I think yeah and much less visible because there's a limit to the number of commemorative coins that can be created and certified for any given year so it's remarkable that it was turned around this quickly and a big part of the reason for that I suspect is that it was introduced very close to the year that it's actually seeking to commemorate because most pieces of legislation to create commemorative coins are introduced much before the event that they seek to commemorate yeah, usually there's, there's a usually year or two or three yeah much much larger lead so, so this is they're, they, it seems that they've gotten a little bit down to the wire in terms of time, so I would guess that they're trying to expedite the process and sort of corral all the people to vote together. And, you know, it has, it has as you mentioned uh, earlier, Jeff, it does have bipartisan support. So especially given how quickly it seems to be expedited, you know, it's likely that it will pass and pass fairly soon. But 2020 is not that far away. They've got about six months a year if they want the coin to be you know, the design to be selected and all the die, the dies to be made and all of the sort of rigmarole about the actual practical creation of the coin, that does take time. And they've got uh, about a year to do it if we're being well, generous. Well, and, so. and, and wouldn't that be appropriate, though, if it came out in August 2020? Weren't you saying that that's hmm. like that's the if, perfect if, timing of this? I mean, if they wanted to get it right down to the day, yeah, then, then in theory they could wait until a little bit past halfway through the year. But it takes time to solicit designs of course. from the public and then run all of the designs by the sort of appointed, you know, overseeing bodies, the, the CCAC and the CFA, the Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee and the Commission of Fine Arts, respectively. They have to sign off on it. So there's there's it's quite a lengthy process. So hopefully it will pass Congress and be signed by President Trump soon so that they'll have plenty of time to to implement the design. And it'll be interesting in their solicitation of designs and their uh, design selection process, it'll be interesting to see if they, to what extent they opt to reckon with the sort of complex legacy of the suffrage movement, which because of the various prejudices and bigotries of some of the early feminists, a lot of the early suffrage movement was directed more at middle-class white women. It'll be interesting to see if they try to reckon with that heritage. So whatever the progress is, and this certainly is uh, some uh, quick progress, it recalls pro is the opposite of con, con, right? Pro and con. Mm -hmm. So what's the opposite of progress? (laughs) Congress. Uh, Yeah, we've we've heard that joke before. So uh, we've talked about a coin that may be coming out next year. Let's dial the clock backward and talk about a coin that came out many years ago. I'm not going to give you the year, though, because that would sort of tip it off. Sounds good. This is our trivia question. All right. This is for the listeners. Chris is just sort of playing along. <laughs> you, you can play it's, along it's, at home. It's purely for their benefit. Yes. So this is a novice level question, but I'm going to add a little twist to this. We get these questions from the Coin World trivia game that was published in the 80s. Deep in the Coin World archive record library, we found a set, and uh, we are working our way through this. And if we are so fortunate to have a 5,000 podcast, we'll get every question in here. (laughs) All right. So So this week, this week, what Soviet leader was mistakenly thought to have placed his initials on the Roosevelt dime. So don't answer, don't answer. But I want to add a little twist to that. Okay. The twist is what were those initials and what do they actually stand for? What do they represent? Two-parter this week. All right. So we're going to touch base with that, give you the result, the answer to the question a little bit later. Let's stay in a historical mode. Mm. So we're talking about something in the past. This week in history, something very important happened, and that was the beginning on June 10th, 1943, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, that's the America's paper money house, and they also have a history of producing postage stamps. But what did they begin producing in 1943? This was allied military currency for use in Europe. This was the predecessor of the military payment certificates that we talked about several weeks ago with Fred Schwann. The interesting note, the thing that I think makes this exciting, especially given our relative proximity to the anniversary of D-Day last week, is every soldier, every sailor, every airman and woman, everyone in the service would have been using this. They would have carried this in their pockets and purses, wallets. 
for spending in a newly free France. And so it's a way to sort of immediately link something to a moment in history. You think about the number of troops that were there. So the, the currency is not rare by any stretch, it is very common, very affordable, and it really speaks to a moment in history that is so important, and that's why it is our This Week in History highlight. All right. Well, apropos of World War Two and and its various effects on currency, yeah. new, its various numismatic effects. For our series of the week, we're going to be talking about war nickels, but not the ones that many of our listeners and readers of the magazine are probably familiar with. Now, a lot of people know that during World War II, in order to save nickel and copper, which were both important metals for producing things like shell casings and other wartime necessities, the United States took some copper and all nickel out of our circulating five-cent coins and instead replaced those two metals with silver and manganese, creating a tiny little bit of precious metal in a common circulating coin that is everyone who you know goes roll hunting or digging through change and finds a war nickel, that's pretty cool because you're getting 35% of the you know, tiny little nickel is silver, so you get a, you do get a little bit of precious metal there. But what a lot of people don't know is that Canada actually had a parallel program during the exact same years. Just not without precious metals. Without precious metals, but the same years. Between 1942 and 1945, Canada radically altered the composition of their five-cent coin, their nickel, and in fact introduced an entirely new design where the U.S. nickel, its devices, a term that we encountered last week, were exactly the same, Canada actually altered theirs quite radically. So it all began in 1942. Previously to 1942, between 1920 and 1941, 1920, for listeners who are unaware, is the year that Canada shifted away from silver five-cent pieces. They had these tiny, these diminutive little silver coins that were often referred to as fish scales. You know, they're very light and very thin, so people called them fish scales because they were shiny, because they were silver, sterling silver, in fact. And then in 1920, they introduced a nickel that was composed, appropriately, of entirely nickel. And that composition was retained until the beginning of 1942, when they introduced a composition referred to as tomback. And tomback was 88% copper, and 12% zinc was precisely the same as it had been before. Uh, you know, the bust of, of King George VI on the obverse and a picture of a beaver on the reverse. So in 1942, they retained that same design. They just used the Tomback alloy. But in 1943, as a reference both to Winston Churchill's famous V for victory sign that he would flash that Nixon would then co-opt some 30 years later for a very different purpose, they decided to sort of emulate the United States because we had had a V nickel before because V means five and these Roman are numerals. five cent coins. So what Canada elected to do is they put a V with a torch in the middle and two small maple leaves down in the bottom right around five and seven o'clock. They put two maple leaves to sort of keep that classically Canadian theme and they put a great big V for victory with a torch right in the middle as a reference to victory and to Winston Churchill's symbol and the sort of the torch of liberty, you know, keeping it alive and all that. And interestingly, with the inside of the rim in lieu of denticles, which is a term that we're going to be talking about in a couple of minutes, they actually had a series of dots and dashes, a Morse code message that read, we win when we work willingly. Now, the U.S. had its own V nickel where it just said V and then sense or no sense on its nickel that circulated between 1883 and 1912. So it actually is a little bit reminiscent of that. Now, beginning in 1944, they changed the composition again. It went from the 42-43 composition Tomback, 88% copper and 12% nickel, to pure steel. They got rid of copper and nickel in their five-cent pieces altogether, and 44 and 45, the composition was now pure steel, plated with chromium, which gave it a really intense luster, really intense shine to it. And then, after the war in 1946, they reverted back to their previous purely nickel composition, where it remained until it was changed again in the 1980s, in the early yes. 1980s. Anyway, the long and short of it is... Between 42 and 45, Canada had their own change in metal composition to their five-cent coin, just in the same way that we did, to try to save valuable metals for the war effort. And really, both coins would make a really nice set. You can assemble a, a short set of just the uh, Canadian war nickels relatively inexpensively and pretty quickly, because there are not that many different dates. There's only four. And they're very common. Very, you can, 
find them very easily. They're very I'm common. Interested. You can find them cheaply. And then you can even pair that with a set of U.S. War Nickels, which you can also get that whole set pretty yeah. cheaply, especially if they're circulated. It's a really nice historical set that you know yeah. would be a good entry point for somebody especially who has an interest in military history. In World War II and all yeah. that. So a moment ago you mentioned this term denticles. Denticles, yes. So let's talk about that, or I'm going to let you talk about so, it. So Denticles is not the name of a demon dentist. It is the... Or a band. <laughs> Could be either. Um, it refers to tiny little notches that are carved not on the edge of a coin, but right on the inside of the rim. So we'll be discussing the difference between the edge and the rim of a coin for a later term of the week. But for the moment, we're going to talk about something that's inside the rim. Now, most of you have probably seen denticles before without being sort of conscious of it. They're like little tiny rectangles that almost look like the, the teeth of a zipper. And on most coins, they look like this. Some coins actually have circular sort of bead-shaped denticles. Those are a little bit less common, but they also do exist. And instead of being on the edge where the reeds are, these tiny little denticles usually encircle whatever design is on the obverse and reverse of a coin. And as I said, there can be denticles can be different shapes, but typically they're tiny little rectangular notches that go all the way around a coin and encircle the design. So that is a denticle. All right. Well, now we're up to speed. We know what we're uh, talking about. We're on the same page. Speaking of being on the same page, are we going to have a trivia answer now? Exactly. Okay. Because I'm 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 feeling pretty uh, pretty confident about my answer here. Although apparently my answers don't matter. Correct. It's all for I the mean, listeners. Yes. It's this is just for show. So <laughs> we pageantry. We uh, we're using the coin world trivia. And this was an easy one, novice category, the top one, the least challenging. But Jeff has so much confidence in me that he added a second part. So. Yes. And, and you. I have confidence in you. <laughs> the question, what Soviet leader was mistakenly thought to have placed his initials on the Roosevelt dime? And well, The Roosevelt dime was introduced in 1946, which means that JS, Soviet Union, 1946, I'm going to say Joseph Stalin. I thought it was Jeff Stark. <sighs> But that, I mean, I wasn't Soviet, but I'm not... You keep telling me you're not that old. What what wow. happened? And your second part of your question was... What mm. What were the initials? J.S., you said. J.N.S. What do they stand for? And again, it's not my name. Sadly. And now the last part was, what do they actually mean? What's the actual meaning behind J.S.? J.S. are the initials of John Sinnock, who was the engraver who designed the Roosevelt dime, and whose initials unfortunately coincided with that of Joseph Stalin. It's interesting to kind of think about that, how that's uh, just one of many examples where the narrative in the broader pop culture was sort of hijacked by these myths took place, took root. And, it, you know, that's not the first time there's been a misconception or myth when it comes to numismatic coins. I think... Well, uh, and, and, and in some of these cases, the the myths kind of, that kind of hijack the actual narrative of these coins, sometimes the myths are a little bit more sort of salacious and fanciful than the real stories themselves. You have a story of the, a salacious oh, I, myth. I have a, a very salacious myth. So, as many... Uh, listeners known, for those of you who don't, as part of a comprehensive coin redesign in 1916, the quarter went from being the sort of prosaic barber quarter to the very beautiful standing liberty motif. Now, this was sort of inspired by sort of Greco-Roman classical art. This period is actually called the Renaissance of American Coinage. It's a book by yeah, Eric... Eric no, no, Roger Burdett. There's Burdett. a trio of books yeah. exploring all the design changes. Yeah, the, the, the renaissance of American coinage. And so, given that this is sort of a classical piece of artwork that was used, one of Liberty, you know, Liberty's portrayed as a, as a strong woman standing with a shield and an olive branch. She's always a woman. Always, and, and since Liberty is always a woman, and since this is kind of classical art, and we know that Greco-Roman art loves naked people. One of Liberty's breasts is exposed, so you can see a one beguiling of, orb of beauty. One of her, <laughs> something like that. Now the myth is that in response to this, there was a public outcry, and because you know the era of moral panic and and all of these things took root, and you know the mint was pressured into into changing the design. When in fact the real story is quite a bit more banal. What actually happened was. In 1917, seeking to have the coins uh, weather circulation a little bit better, the Mint modified a number of the devices on the obverse and put a, a sheet of chain mail across both of Liberty's breasts, so she is now modest and fully clothed, but 
it was not as a response to any kind of moral panic. It was, in fact, just a pragmatic choice to make the coins wear better in circulation. So that's a salacious myth. That is just that, a myth. One myth that's much more recent and yeah. certainly less salacious, although it has taken root in the culture nonetheless, is related to the presidential dollar series that was inaugurated in 2007. There were many reports, especially beginning during the Obama administration, claiming that the president had ordered In God We Trust off the coins, and there were all sorts of memes going out, people outraged that God was being taken off the American coinage, when in fact the story is much simpler than that. There was no intent to hide the religious nature. It was just In God We Trust and the year date and the mint mark were all put on the edge as edge lettering. And that was just how legislation mandated it. The law was introduced by a Republican congressman, Michael Castle. It was signed by George W. Bush late in 2005. That gave them 13, 14 months to start working on the presidential dollar designs that appeared in 2007. But somehow this took root in popular culture, and it was just... Blatantly untrue. The only real failure of the design, too, was that the edge lettering was very small and poorly done, and the coins didn't... When they toned in circulation, they toned very darkly, That to the point that it would often obscure the edge lettering, so you could yeah. barely even read it. So it was, yeah, it was a failure of design in addition to just a failure of the public to take notice of edge lettering. Yeah, and, and it may be... Um, you know, asking too much for the public to notice the edge lettering, but because of the volume what a of burden. the volume of coinage necessary or at least thought necessary at the time for the presidential dollar program, they were just moving them out as fast as they could. And so the letters were very crude compared to, you know, you think back 200 years earlier when the U.S. had edge lettering on coins, how ornate and beautiful and deep and, and very legible, readable. I write about world coins. There's all sorts of world coins with edge lettering and other edge inscriptions and, and DCS symbols so, and things. Yeah. So and, it's the point being it's doable. You, it's you can do edge lettering well. You can. Uh, maybe not when you're cranking out 1.4 billion or whatever they were. They did, but but so right. so that's why that myth sort of yep. took hold. And uh, there's you know the hobby is just littered with these these and, myths. And, and, it's, and it's really similarly, fun to think about. And then similarly in eight, between 1866 and 1867, on the first ever nickel five cent coin, one other myth that has really taken hold is that. In 1866, to replace the half-dime, which was the previous coin that was worth five cents that had been circulating, they were tiny little silver coins, just like in Canada, the mint opted to start creating nickel five-cent pieces, and the first one was called the shield nickel. And as its name suggests, on the obverse, there was a union shield, and on the reverse, there were a bunch of stars in a circle around the number five, you know, denoting the number of cents that the coin was worth. And between those stars were a series of rays, you know, light rays emanating out from the middle of the coin uh, that went in between the stars. And the light rays were removed in mid-1867. The coin was introduced in 1866. So in 1866, in the first part of 1867, rays appeared on the reverse of this nickel. But then in mid-1867, for reasons somewhat similar to Liberty's breast being covered on the uh, Standing Liberty Quarter in 1917, they opted to remove the rays. Now, the myth that's quite interesting is that in the aftermath of the Civil War, when this coin was introduced, it was introduced in 1866, it's obviously a year after the Civil War ended, some people thought that the rays were removed because the, the rays with the stars bore a resemblance to the Confederate battle flag. And with the wounds of the war still very much open, people thought that it was removed for that reason, when in fact it was just removed because the rays in between the stars cluttered up the design. When it wore down, they kind of wore together. It just didn't look very good. They removed it purely just for aesthetic reasons and, and to have it wear better in circulation, not because it was eliciting any sort of painful memories about the uh, recently ended conflict. So, as you're saying, Jeff, it goes to show that, you know, stories, true or not, about coins often take on a life of their own. And in fact, stories about coin collecting could take on a life of their own, which is something that our podcast guest, Andy Kimmel, had something to say about. Yes. Amos Advantage is a proud sponsor of the Coin World podcast. 
Whether you're looking for numismatic books, storage, or cleaning supplies, Amos Advantage has you covered. Visit AmosAdvantage.com today. And now, back to the show. We're pleased to have Andrew Kimmel of Paragon Numismatics this week to discuss some of the myths around collecting and things, maybe questions that collectors have never had the courage to ask. And we're going to tee that up for you. It was a fun, fun talk. We are on today with Andy Kimmel of Paragon Numismatics, who gave a talk at the Central States Numismatic Society's convention about questions that numismatists might be afraid to ask, or numismatic knowledge that the you know many collectors might be embarrassed to ask about. So thank you so much for joining us, Andy. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show today. And I could probably add to the title that it may be answers people don't want to hear to questions they were afraid to ask. And that gets into some rather scary concepts that people really just don't want to hear because we've been brainwashed into thinking certain things that may not be true in the real real world. And today, maybe we'll talk about them a little bit. Awesome. So I didn't have the pleasure of being there for the talk. I know Chris did. And, sure. and theoretically, most of our listeners did not as well. That's an interesting approach to this broader subject. What is the sort of first belief that should be dispelled? What lesson is there to learn sort of as, as paramount? Sure. And that's an odd response that I'm going to give you. And that lesson to take away from this is that this is everything you're going to hear and that I talked about at the lecture is really not as much of my opinion as it is an observation. And what I think about numismatics many times doesn't dovetail with reality or with what I like in coins and whatnot. It's more a function of having, at this point, 32 years of buying coin collections from the public and helping collectors build collections. What have I taken away from all this? What kind of patterns do I see emerging, both in terms of popularity in the market, resaleability, maybe what do people want to collect who are really knowledgeable and have a lot of experience, and just as importantly, unfortunately, uh, what kind of horror stories and expressions do I see on people's face that I don't want to describe over and over and over and over again? And after you've bought thousands of collections from people, you start to gain some perspective on things. And that's where this develops from. What kind of conversation have I had too many times that I hope to never have with another collector again because they're knowledgeable? What could they have done 20, 30, 40 years earlier that may have made a difference in what the result is 30 or 40 years later? So now that you've asked those questions, let's let's hear the answers. (laughs) I have no idea. No, just kidding. Um, I think the answer is, my response is nothing new. And my response is Dave Bowers' response, because Dave Bowers is the one that said it years and years and years ago, quality, rarity, originality, beauty, stick to series that people like that have been popular for a long time. Chances are they'll be very popular in the future. Make sure you're buying the best coin that you can for your budget, something that's original, that has been accurately graded, purchased from someone who knows what they're doing and has that discrimination the experience to see, oh, this is a bad coin, this is a good coin. What I would expand that into is that I think we could say that value in numismatics is never or rarely measured by what you paid for a coin. Value is measured by the quality, rarity, beauty, originality of the coin, the opportunity to buy the coin, and how much you enjoy the coin. That's the value in numismatics. And too many people place that value on the price they paid for the coin. Well, as soon as you start paying an average price for a given coin, the reality is usually that you're going to end up with an average coin. Now, if that's in your wheelhouse and you want to assemble a collection of average material, great. Okay. Just understand that when you sell it, you probably won't be bowled over by the results. All things remaining the same and market changes notwithstanding one direction or another. So the analogy I like to draw is, for example, let's just presume or for fun, decide that you want to buy a 1924 $20 St. Gaudens gold piece, PCGS or NGC graded, and you're looking for a nice coin for your typesets. And so you go to a coin dealer or a coin show or a coin auction, whatever it is, and there magically are 20 graded 1924 $20 gold pieces all lined up on a table, all the same grade, all the same date. And you approach the dealer and you say, yes, I'm looking for this coin. 
uh, what's the price? And the dealer says, well, there's a little bit of a variation here. Um, do you want to pick one? And if you pick one, it'll be this price. And if I pick one, it'll be this price. And you might, as a collector, be tempted to say, well, I want the lowest priced one you have because it's just going to my typeset. And the dealer looks through it and he pulls out this coin and says, okay, this one is $1,325. And that's the one with the lowest price. And here we go. And you look at the coin, you examine it both sides, and you, all of a sudden you realize there's a big spot on it. Well, maybe there's a carbon spot. There's a big dent on it. Well, there's a scratch across it on the reverse and an edge nick, and there's a fingerprint in this coin. And you're looking at the dealer and say, I don't want this coin. And the dealer says, well, you wanted the lowest price one. Here you go. And you say, no, 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 no. And you look through the other remaining nine, and you find one that's beautiful, absolutely flawless, glowing luster, nice original color, as nice as any 65 you've ever seen. You say, I want that one. And the dealer says, well, that one's 1425 And if you're a collector who's concentrating on value and price, you don't organically understand the concept. And you say, well, why is this one more expensive? Well, it's the nicest one, and you're getting what you pay for here. And the collector would say, well, aren't they all the same since they're the same coin, the same year, the same grade, same grading service? And then the dealer says, thank you very much. I really appreciate you stopping. Have a pleasant day, and good luck with your collecting. So what that person is measuring their collection according to the price they pay. Now, given that better coin, they recognize that it's better, but they resist paying more for something really nice. Down the road, let's just say for fun, you buy that inexpensive coin for $1,325, and you're happy enough with it, and the time comes for you to sell your coin collection. Okay, so you go to a show or a coin dealer, whomever it is, and you say, here are my coins, and the dealer encounters this 1924 with the, the spot and the fingerprint and the off color and the edge nick and the scratch, and the dealer says, well, let's see, generic coins are $1,200, I'll pay you $1,100. And you, the collector, say, hmm, uh, that's kind of far away. And then the dealer looks at it and sa- again and says, you know what? I'm lowering my price to 1050 I didn't even notice that big scratch on it. And you say, wait, you're not allowed to do that. And the dealer says, well, sure I am. The coin's not real nice, unfortunately. And you as the collector might say, well, I got a really good deal on it. But yet you realize that the dealer doesn't want it, almost at any price. And so you're trying to figure out what's going on here. And you're a little bit upset, not at yourself because you bought the coin, but you just can't figure out why this particular person isn't overly enamored with what's a nice coin professionally graded. So you walk away, walk out of the shop, a little bit disenchanted. Put that situation that we just described over on the left side and forget it happened. Now let's turn the tables a little bit and presume for fun that instead of purchasing that $1,325 coin, you stretched and bought that $1,400 coin. And you go into the same coin shop 20 years later to sell it, and of course the market may have gone up or down, and when encountering that coin, the coin dealer looks at it and says, ooh, that's really nice. How much do you want for that coin? And the collector says, well, oh, it's just a common day coin. But the collector, the dealer says, what's well, a really nice one? I love the color on it. And uh, current bid is $1,300. And uh, how about $1,300? And you think to yourself, oh, my God, I kind of got my money out of it. Or maybe I made money, maybe I lost money. But that was easy. How come that was so easy? So now compare those two and contrast those two situations. Generic coin, same coin, same grade, same year. One coin, you encountered resistance when you sold it because of the flaws in the coin. The other coin, the professional was thrilled to buy it and maybe paid a little bit too much money for it. Why? Because that dealer probably recognized that there would be another collector who would be just as happy to own it as that dealer would be to buy it and as you were to own it when you owned it. How many times has this happened to me over the years? Thousands, many, many thousands. And you can substitute the word 1924, $20 gold piece, for 1977 proof set because there is no difference between a 1924, $20 gold piece and a 1977 proof set. It is a generic widget. It has a defined price level. There is a minor variation, but imagine that 1977 proof set if you tore the box or someone wrote, 
Uncle Billy on the box because it was given to little Johnny by Uncle Billy. Well, now all of a sudden you have a flawed product. No one wants it. You might get a better price on it, a little lower price when you initially purchase it, but when you go to sell it, impossible. The dealer looks at that 1977 proof set and says, I'm sorry, I just can't do anything with it um, because the packaging is flawed. So nothing changes. I would argue in, in these scenarios, though, that at least with the generic gold coin, you have the um, the background or the safety net of the fact that th- there's a precious metal investment. Yeah, the proof set's spendable in a sense, but for somebody who's looking at uh, holding gold, at least there's gold value, not to sort of distract from the broader argument. Yeah, I could have sub- I could have said a 1911 Indian cent or a 1911 Lincoln cent. It doesn't just pick something randomly. Gold content notwithstanding, the point is common is common. And when you're talking about a generic product, people tend to pay attention initially to the window dressing, whether it is a proof set or if it is the surface quality. Either way, no one's ever going to get really excited about a 1924 $20 gold piece unless they just want all gold or a 1977 proof set. Now let's change the equation a little bit. And thinking about those two previous examples, instead of it being a 1924 $20 gold piece, it is a 1921. Okay, now we're talking about a major, major world-class rarity. You walk into any coin shop with any reputable professional dealer and offer them a 1921 $20 gold piece, they're going to fall out of their chair. This thing just doesn't walk into a coin shop or very rarely out of an old coin collection. And you have rarity on your side. And that's when you can have a really good time. Now, not everyone can go out and spend fifty, sixty, a hundred thousand dollars on a coin like that in circulated condition. But there is where Dave Bauer's words tend to ring true. Since nineteen twenty one, this has been recognized as something as having precious value to knowledgeable collectors. There are people that will amass gigantic quantities of common $20 gold pieces or common proof sets or gigantic quantities of common anything. And here's where it gets a little bit tricky. There's a difference between an accumulator and a collector. And it's not bad to accumulate, whether you're accumulating gold or silver or platinum, or if you like proof sets, accumulate proof sets. But just understand that as, as long as the element of rarity is lacking from the equation, you're always going to have limited results when you go to sell, and you're more at the mercy of a generic marketplace. You could make the same argument for gold or silver, but no one ever called those an investment in the first place, and hopefully they'll never be bought with the notion that they are an investment, which they are not, of course. They are a commodity, not an investment. But as far as coin collecting goes, Dave Bauer's words are correct. Quality, rarity, beauty, originality, and do knowledgeable collectors who are really savvy and have been around the block for a long time, do these people who really know what they're doing, do they want that coin? Do they really care about that coin? You say that you've seen versions of this story play out many Mm -hmm. thousands of times as a dealer. Mm -hmm. Do you find that the... Of the two kind of buying schemas that you've laid out, the price-oriented and quality-oriented, maybe to to categorize them broadly, Mm -hmm. do you find that one of those two modes of buying and modes of collecting have come, one of the two has come to the fore in the past decade or 20 years or however long, and if one of them really has come to the fore, to what do you attribute that change? Absolutely. The answer is the Internet is responsible for that. And in the, in the fore, in the background, the reason for the popularity and the divergence of the market and the concentration on quality and rarity, which I think has been happening uh, for really nice coins, is a function of the state quarter program. And the state quarter program back in 1999, when those first Delaware quarters came out, you know, the quarter horse, you know, this was something that to, to a dealer was really interesting. We hadn't seen a new design on a quarter or any coin for that matter uh, since the Susan B. Anthony or the, and this was just a wonderful thing. Millions of kids 
in the back in 1999 started collecting coins and sticking these state quarters in their albums. And they were, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, fifteen years old, whatever it was. Some of them did it with their fathers, grandfathers, mothers, grandmothers. Maybe they did it on their own. That and was, the I, internet. I those kids. Yeah. So I get it. Yeah, and so the internet was there, but not quite what it was because iPads, iPods, and smartphones didn't really exist at that point. So we still had that element of old-fashionedness, if you will. Not to drink old-fashioned, by the way. I should should say that. Um, so those 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds back in 1999 add 15 more years, and guess what happens? Wait a second. Add 20 years, we're out of college, we're out of school, we have jobs, we have money, and we have this thing in our hand called an iPhone or an iPad or a tablet or whatever you want to call it or a laptop computer, and all of a sudden the world expands, and now people start coming back to numismatics, even if it's one hundredth of one percent of those kids that collected state quarters, a thousandth of one percent of those kids that collected state quarters, you're talking about tens of thousands or more of new collectors who have this technology in their hand. Fine. What do they do with it? Well, as said, they're looking at this on a computer screen. And so what do they see? They're given choices. Let's say their budget for the first coin expenditure is 30 bucks. Let's just pick a random number. And for $30, here are their choices. They can either have a worn smooth 1924D Lincoln cent in, you know, fine or so. They can have a Eisenhower dollar in MS64, PCGS graded and GC graded, not real flashy. They can have a proof silver eagle in proof 69 that's pretty wild. Uh, they could have a beautifully toned Washington Quarter for about $30, maybe MS63, but great color. They could have a brown Barber Dime in extra fine that's kind of grungy looking. They could have a scratched Liberty Nickel 1884 in extra fine that's not real inspiring. And on and on and on. And you see this line being drawn technologically thanks to the internet where things today have to look pretty. So the line in the sand that was surmounted, surpassed about 10 years ago, or the divergence of the market, as I like to call it, that happened about 10 years ago with smart technology, is that things that look good have done well. Things that are ugly have not. And I hate to put it so tersely, but that's the bottom line. So in some sense, technology has made discernment and being, you know, having a very sharp eye and developing a sharp eye. Technology has in some ways dulled those skills or at least made them in terms of buying coins, less essential because they're, in some sense, we're spoiled for choice. Correct. And that hints at a sinister underlying problem. Do you know what that is? I keep thinking of in a world sense, since that's my area, at some point there needs to be a reckoning with all the stuff that is, you know, it's just, it's ugly. It should trade it as junk silver as opposed mm -hmm. to a collector value, you know, something with a 60 million mintage from Great Britain, a, a sixpence from the 30s, you know, the, the price disparity for a nice looking example is not that much compared to a, a lower grade one. And some of that it's almost a drag on the market. It, it needs to be melted. It needs to go away. And, <laughs> right. And so the better stuff, you know, takes center stage. Yes, and you can substitute the coin 1964 Kennedy half dollar for that sixpence or whatever you're talking about because whether that coin is gem uncirculated or worn smooth, it's worth about the same thing. And yes, the best thing we can do is fill a battleship full of 1964 half dollars and then torpedo it in the Atlantic Ocean and make them go away. Then dump a bunch of salt on it so the salt grinds it up and eats the rest of the coin. So we would love that to happen to many coins. Hey, that's what the melting pot's for. Come on. <laughs> right. But it's more fun to think of torpedoing a battleship but uh, that's full of proof sets or something like that. So we can't make them go away. And that's an entering something else. But my point before in hinting for or searching for a sinister problem is when we see these things on the internet, one of the things that's important, do we really trust what we're seeing? Is that image original? Has it been doctored? Is the coin depicted in that image genuine? Is it artificially toned? 
are we trusting the fact that there's a sticker on that coin in that image? Is that coin bent? Has it been cleaned? The old problems still exist. I think they're more technologically difficult to resolve at this point just because so many things can be hidden. Someone was just in my office and we were discussing Redfield silver dollars and he purchased something off the internet and the seller had masked or photographed this coin so that you couldn't tell that the back of the Redfield holder was cracked down the middle severely. Yet he received it in the mail and the seller kind of admitted, yeah, well, you know what, you didn't ask about it and the coin's intact. Well, technology enabled the seller to hide the fact that it was cracked. Are we trusting what we see? I would uh, respond in that sense, as important as that is as a um, buyer beware sort of standpoint. Mm-hmm. Technology would also give you, especially if, depending on the purchase venue, you know, you can respond with negative feedback, you can respond sure. with a, a Yelp review. So there, there's a there's still a counterbalance to this experience, and certainly becoming proficient in reading imagery mm-hmm. will will help in uh, sort of stave off these unsavory events. Do you think it's more important to read imagery or learn about coins? Well, I don't think it's an either or. And I'm just saying it's, it's both. But my point here is by way of an example, uh, about a month ago, I saw an online post on one of the Facebook groups, coin collecting Facebook groups. Someone posed a question for collectors, and there were a a tremendous number of responses. And the question was, where do you buy most of your coins? People said auction, eBay, online, direct sales, and on and on and on and on and on and on. And I'm looking down at the five, six, seven, eight responses that people are voting on. And guess what was completely absent from that list? Having a representative, like a dealer, shop? Yep, a human being, coin dealer, coin show, neither one of them. And this, these are the people that are using the technology. And it made me think, do they know that coin shows exist? Have they ever actually sat down with a live human being for five minutes and actually learned about coins and asked a reputable professional dealer who's were here for them, you know, should I be buying this? Or can you teach me about, is this coin clean? Tell me why. What should I be doing? And dozens and dozens and dozens of people who responded to this had never been to a coin shop. They'd never been to a coin show. And so you go, oh, my God, we've got to be screwing up somehow. If people don't know that we exist, maybe we are dinosaurs. And I I love being a dinosaur because when I sit down with someone for the first time who's been a collector for a varying amount of time, it's like someone turns on a light switch. They go, oh, my God, 10 minutes talking to you. I've learned more than three years searching on the Internet and trying to figure out these pictures. Why didn't I come to you a long time ago? And all I can do is say, I've been here for 32 years. So what is the answer then, whether it's trying to move some of the knowledge and perspective and experience that you and other dealers have on yeah. an online forum, or whether it's the reverse, encouraging people to make the effort to show up in person to a coin show or a coin shop, is there a way to reverse the sort of disintermediation of dealers in yeah. the hobby and in the purchasing sphere? And what does that disintermediation mean for the market and for the hobby, writ large? It means we need to do more things like Rob Oberth did with the Great American Coin Hunt. We need to stick the coins in people's faces on a park bench with a business card on it and say, call me if you found this. We need to do this 10,000 times a month around the United States and organically create new, not just new collectors, but create a different mindset among these new generation of collectors. It's a seed. Every coin we give away, every card we give out, every phone call we receive is a seed. And how many of these take root? Well, maybe it's one thousandth of one percent. Fine. So that means we have to drop a million coins onto park benches. Uh, When people bring in proof sets, some foreign sets, stamp collections, you name it, that really don't have a lot of value, I tell people, look, take it to the mall, leave it on a bench at the mall, and write a note congratulating the person. You want them to have it. If you have any questions, call a coin dealer or pick up the phone, go on and do an internet search, 
talk to someone. We need to stick the coins in their hands and give them away. It doesn't take much to give away a buffalo nickel or a silver dollar. Everyone's going to live. We need to do it ourselves and to look to anyone else to make it happen and to allow technology to overrule the tangible thrill of buying and selling coins and actually meeting a live human being, there's no substitute for that. There absolutely isn't. What uh, and, and I preach the gospel of going to coin shows when I am given the platform. What I can't overlook, though, and I, I try to wrap my head around how to counteract this reality is if I want to go here in Sydney, Ohio, where Coin World is, if I want to go shop for shoes, I better go down there to the local place. It's real great. They support local people. I got to be there by six o'clock and I'm done. Or I can go to Walmart and they're open all the time. And the reality is not everybody can get to a coin shop. There, you know, there aren't as many of those now as 20 years ago. Not right. as many of those folks can get to a coin show given the, you know, the nature of work today right. and, and everything. And, you know, the Internet's always open. It's always on. I, you know, so many people go to Amazon for common household goods and, and even beyond that that, uh, how do we bridge the gap between this reality that going to shows and talking to dealers and other collectors in person has tremendous value with the necessary ease of doing business at all hours of the day, whereas those strictures are fundamentally in place in person? Right. I'll revert to my previous statement. We have to create organically new collectors. I'm not saying it's too late for those people that are out there because we are an internet society right now. That doesn't mean that we can't slowly shift away from that and try to educate and steer people toward the actual human being. It may not be possible, but it was certainly possible 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, 100 years ago to go to a coin shop. People worked as much as they work now and they could go and meet a human being, but that may not be realistic. And that's the point you're trying to make here. Technology has changed things. Our habits have changed things. So the human interaction is our homework assignment, if you will. So when you're on an elevator, say hello to a human being who's on the elevator and wish them a good day. When you are on an airplane sitting there, it's okay to read a Coin World magazine and someone may actually take note. That's okay to actually have, I hate to say it, a paper thing in your hand or use the mobile site. That's fine too. But say hello to someone. Give away a buffalo nickel. If you see a kid, carry some buffalo nickels in your pocket and give it to the kid. If you see them on a playground, leave them on the corner of the sandbox and walk away. This is what the organic creation of collectors is all about, and it's our responsibility to do that. Now, reaching the people that are unreachable, well, we're preaching to the choir. People wouldn't be listening to this right now if they weren't, quote-unquote, on our side. So this is good, and technology is, of course, doing this. My advice to your listeners is as follows. Go to coin shops. Talk to coin dealers. Go to major national auctions. Go to major national conventions. Go to small conventions. Get out there and look at the coin in your hand. Get them in your hand. When you are trying to buy an 1881S Morgan Dollar, an MS65, put five of them out on a case and pick the best one. It's that simple. To that end, on a more practical level and for the collector and the dealer and the, the interested person who is trying to get more serious and trying to get out and handle more coins and get more experience, what are some tools of the trade that you would really recommend? I remember in your talk, you mentioned that there were a few, there's sort of an optimal condition for viewing coins. Right. What right. is that and what are the tools of the trade? Okay, so the first thing is a seven power high quality magnifying loop. Bausch & Lum makes a really good one. Zeiss makes a wonderful one. A real good rule of thumb here is that if the magnifier you're using costs you less than $35, $40, whatever it is, you're probably doing yourself a disservice. People tend to mistake quantity of magnification for quality of optics, and it's the quality of the image that's the most important thing. The main, most mainstream dealers and collectors and graders at the grading services will use a seven-power loop uh, as far as lighting, 
use a 100-watt clear glass light bulb in a dark room in a lamp that can handle it, not a, not a soft white bulb, not a frosted bulb. Uh, I don't like halogen. It's too intense for me, but never an LED or a fluorescent. A clear, old-fashioned 100-watt light bulb that will probably cost you, I don't know, a, a dollar. Uh, you can buy a lamp online or you can buy it at Target. Make sure it is rated to handle 100 watts. Otherwise, these things have a tendency to explode, and we don't want that happening. Turn on a nightlight. Turn off the overhead lights. Um, maybe use a black or a white background to look at your coins underneath it. So, lamp, light bulb, magnifying glass, seven power, maybe 10 power magnifier if you really want to look at some fine details. Beyond that, it's pretty cut and dry. Put the magnifier right up to your eye, then bring the coin up till it's in focus. Keep both eyes open when you're doing it. Make sure you handle all the coins by the edge, not by the rim or the obverse reverse. Clean hands are a good thing. Put a, a towel or a cloth down in case you drop the coins. Wait, not in case you drop it. When we drop the coins, we all, we all drop coins. So expect it to happen. If you're not dropping coins, you're not looking at enough coins. That's the bottom line. Uh, the next thing you can do to educate yourself about coins is to learn what cleaned coins look like. And people say, of course, never clean or polish your coins. Of course, never do it because that strips them of their originality. Yet, how are you really going to know? Are you going to take someone's word for it, take the grading service's word for it, coin dealer, another collector, your next-door neighbor? How can you really tell if something is cleaned or polished or damaged or changed in some way? And the best thing to do is just to get a hold of a, an original roll or two of Kennedy Half Dollars from 1964, bright, fresh, uncirculated, crisp coins, then take them home and clean, polish them, and destroy them in as many different creative ways as you can. Every one of them, wreck it using a different process. And every time you do it, take some notes. Maybe glue the coin to a piece of cardboard or a notepad or keep an index card with it in an envelope describing exactly what you did to wreck that coin. Use household chemicals. Be careful. Wear gloves. Good ventilation, of course. Don't use anything corrosive or caustic that will damage your skin or you, know, and you might, might poison you. But certainly be creative. Take a cloth. Wipe the coin as hard as you can for 10 seconds. Take another coin. Wipe the coin as hard as you can for 30 seconds. Take another coin. Do it for a minute. Better yet, do half the coin. Cover half the coin with a cloth so you don't impair the coin, uh, the obverse or reverse, but only clean half of it so you can compare the unclean portion, the original portion, to what you did to it. Get an eraser. Get Brillo. Get a wire brush. You name it. Same with artificial toning. We, of course, you're not supposed to artificially tone your coins, but get those same Franklin half dollars or Kennedy halves or whatever it is and think of as many different ways as you can to artificially tone them. This is how you learn what's a spot and, again, record what you do. Artificial toning takes anywhere from five seconds to 50 years, or, you know, the toning process does for you to notice it. So the main thing is cleaning and polishing, but artificial toning and intentionally toning things is a really fun way to learn about the natural aging process of coins in a variety of metals, silver, copper, don't bother with gold, it won't happen. So this is what I tried to encourage people to do to learn about numismatics, the real basics, see it the right way. If you use inferior optics or the wrong optics or the wrong loop, it's analogous to driving down the street at night with your lights off during a snowstorm with non-functional windshield wipers and a dirty windshield. You're going to hit that deer that's next to the road, right? It's going to jump right out in front of you. You're still driving a car, but you can't see what you're doing. And looking at coins, buying coins, is exactly the same thing. Why would you go out and buy a $1,000 coin if you can't see it? So there are definitely industry standards for viewing coins employed by the grading services. And don't you think it's a good idea if you look at the coins the same way the graders are? Yeah, and I think the very interesting take on learning how to spot the different levels of cleaning and toning, that really flips conventional wisdom on its head in a sense. That's a really nice way to approach learning about this without necessarily incurring the tuition cost of making bad purchases. Correct. <laughs> tuition cost, and that's an interesting way of thinking about it. The joke I always heard is, as a collector, until you lost your first twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars in mistakes in 
buying clean coins, you haven't graduated from your first semester of your freshman year of numismatics. <laughs> and as a dealer, until you've blown your first quarter million dollars worth of errors and buying counterfeit clean, artificially toned on and on and on coins, same thing, you haven't graduated from the first semester of your freshman year of numismatics. That strikes, I think, anyone listening, and certainly it strikes Jeff and I, as a pretty uh, precipitous tuition cost that I think most people are trying to avoid. And so how do you avoid it? My guess would be applying some of the techniques that you've laid out here in addition to buying the book before the coin and all of the other numismatic yeah. wisdom. And also, I, I would add to that, and those, are, those sound spot on, sit down with a professional rare coin dealer. And in five minutes, the dealer, if, they're, if they have the time to do it or if they are interested enough in you to take the time to do it, and that should be your litmus test as a collector to find out who you're going to deal with, you will learn more in just a few minutes with some professional doing a side-by-side and explaining or even demonstrating. And you'll say, oh, my God, why did I fall for that? How couldn't I have seen that? And sometimes it's as simple as the dealer hands you his or her magnifier and says, use mine. And you say, oh, my God, I never saw that scratch. Well, you're using a $5 magnifying glass. Fair enough. And we appreciate you taking a little more than the five minutes that it would take a collector to sit down. We appreciate you taking the time to sit down and and tell us about a lot of these ways of avoiding incurring costs and, and sharing some of your perspective on how people can buy coins smarter and Absolutely. how people can, can participate in the hobby at a higher level without needing to, well, make, like you said, $25,000 worth of mistakes. So, right, and that's my job as a professional numismatist, and that is to help my clients and my collector customers not make these errors. Awesome. We hope that uh, in sharing what you shared today with our listeners that we can help them reach those same conclusions and experience the same joy that others have experienced. It has been a pleasure and an honor to have you today. So I think I speak for Absolutely. Chris when I say that and myself. Maybe we'll see that presentation down the road somewhere and folks can get the whole hour plus presentation and pick up some more things that we couldn't cover today. But you've covered quite a bit of ground and we appreciate it again. Thank you very much. I appreciate your calling and uh, inviting me to participate today. I hope this, if it saves one person from making some major tactical errors, we our efforts collectively have been worthwhile. So thank you very much for awesome. allowing me to participate. That's, that's something we're hoping to do with the podcast. So thank you very much. Thank for you again. Coming. You're welcome. Andrew Thanks, Kimmel again. with Paragon Numismatics. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Andy Kimmel of Paragon Numismatics, and hopefully you learned something, because we certainly did. He really shined a light on some interesting misconceptions and some new strategies for collecting that I think we all can really learn something from. And please remember, if you've been enjoying any of the episodes that you've listened to, or if you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, happy collecting! Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on all orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop AmosAdvantage.com today.